Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today, I want to start by reflecting on the experience of having a baby. Any listeners who have had a baby, think about your own experience. And any listeners who haven't had a baby, perhaps you can think about someone close to you like a spouse or a sibling or maybe stories from your own mother about your own birth. For me, I can remember wanting to have a baby. And then I remember using a pregnancy test from a grocery store to find out I was pregnant and then thinking of a fun way to tell my husband and then doing fun activities to tell my own family of origin, my parents and my siblings and my husband's family. And then when we had older kids, telling them they were going to have a new sibling, especially with my first baby, there was a big celebration among the women of my community. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And I wasn't living in Denver at the time, so I flew back to Denver so that my mom and all of her friends who had watched me grow up could throw me a big baby shower and give me gifts. And then there were all the books I read about childbirth and my birth plan and lots of prayers from family members for the baby's safety and my safety. And then when my babies were born, they received a blessing at church from all the men in our family and community who loved them and welcomed them into the world. So from start to finish, having a baby is a deeply personal experience, and it's deeply tied to family and spirituality. And I wanted to start the episode this way because today we'll be discussing the book Reproduction on the Reservation, Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Colonialism in the Long 20th Century by Brianna Theobald. And the book does such a beautiful job of reminding the reader that reproduction is so much more than just a biological function. On the cover of the book is a painting of two young Native American women who are pregnant. And I spent a long time looking at that painting before I even opened the book to get me into that headspace of remembering that these are real people's lives, real people's loves and families. And I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today who will be talking about reproduction on the reservation, the author of the book, Brianna Theobald. Welcome, Brianna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to dive into this book today and talk about all of the amazing things that I learned from it. But first, we'll start with your professional bio, and then I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself a little bit more personally. Dr. Brianna Theobald is an assistant professor of history and affiliate faculty in the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Rochester. She's an award-winning teacher and researcher in the fields of U.S. women's and gender history, the history of Native America, and the history of reproduction. Her first book, Reproduction on the Reservation, Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Colonialism in the Long 20th Century, was published in 2019, and it explores the intersection of colonial and reproductive politics in Native America from the late 19th century to the present. This book has received multiple awards and, as I said, is the text that we'll be discussing today. Theobald's research on Native women's history has appeared in academic publications, including the Journal of Women's History and the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of American History. And she's also been published in venues, including Time Magazine and The Washington Post. And she's currently working on two book-length projects, Making the Impossible Reality, Genealogies of Indigenous Women's Activism, and Safe Haven, Feminisms and the Domestic Violence Movement. All amazing projects, Brianna. And again, I really loved this book and learned so much. But I'd love if you could introduce yourself a little bit more personally. Tell us where you're from and what brought you to do the work that you do. Sure. So the question of where I'm from is actually weirdly a little bit complicated. I was born in Minnesota. 
And so there might be some times in the course of this podcast when you'll really catch the mm-hmm. Minnesota. <laughs> but we actually moved away when I was quite young, two or so, and moved quite a bit growing up, but mostly in the the Great Plains, kind of the the heartland. My dad was actually an academic. And so we were kind of following him from college town to college town. And then we landed in Nebraska, actually rural Nebraska, when I was in about junior high. And then I went on to do my undergraduate work and to get a master's degree in history at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. And so that's where, especially during my master's program, University of Nebraska, Lincoln has a really strong field in the American West and in Native American and Indigenous history. And so I entered that master's program with an interest in studying U.S. women's history. And I had the the privilege of working with an amazing advisor, Margaret Jacobs, who right when I was working with her published this really big, important book. It won the Bancroft Prize, which is this big award. And it was on the removal of Indigenous children from their homes in the United States and also in Australia. So it was was kind of a comparative work. And I just thought that, first of all, that was such an important history that so few people knew about. Mm -hmm. And also just, I thought it was so amazing that someone's job was to learn and then write and teach these types of histories. And that just struck me as really important. And I think also working with Margaret, you know, who was looking at removal of children and following these children to boarding schools. In a later book, she looks at the removal into the foster and adoptive system. So looking at those particular trajectories, I think that's what really led me to think about the mothers, right? And the Mm -hmm. families from which these children were removed. And very quickly, of course, I come to learn that the families from which they were removed meant something different in many of their conceptualization. It was much broader, right? Like less nuclear based than the kind of family upbringing that I had had. So I think that's really where I became really interested in and excited about this kind of body of work. And then I went on to do graduate work in Tempe, Arizona, and ironically, although the book really centers on the Crow Reservation, which is in Montana, and we'll, I'm sure, talk a lot about Montana, but it's actually through some connections in Arizona that, that really led me to the Crow Reservation, which has become such a, an important location for me for all sorts of reasons over the past now, I guess, seven or so years, seven, eight years. So can you start us off with maybe just a summary, a brief summary of the book before we dive into the details. Yeah. I wonder if I could circle back to where you started with the the cover, which I just adore. And it is a painting of two Crow women. And it's actually based on a historical photograph from 1911. So these were real living, breathing Crow women sisters, one of whom was pregnant. And so it's this really kind of striking image of of one supporting the other in pregnancy. And and the reason I like to give a real shout out to this book, or excuse me, the cover, it's striking. It's so beautiful. And it was painted by a Crow artist named Ben Peace. So I always like to give a shout out to Ben Peace Visions. He's immensely talented. And it was really special that he was willing to let me use this painting, which he painted in 2018. It's called Of a Path Known by the Old Ones. 
And part of why it was so special is because not only am I a fan of his work, but I interviewed many of his aunties and, and grandmothers for the project. So that just felt appropriate and special, again, to return to the idea that the real people whose histories are part of this and involved in various ways. So that brings us to Crow, which is important for the kind of summary of the book, because this started as a dissertation for me, which is quite common with academic books. And I, it was an, initially a very kind of policy history. Like, what is that history over time? And so I used a lot of government records, especially to kind of piece together that policy story. But what I came to realize as I was doing that in the course of, of researching and writing that is that it just didn't make sense to me. It didn't quite work to talk about and think about the policy as kind of separate from the women and the communities who were experiencing them. So I really did a pretty significant transformation over the course of the transition from dissertation to the final book. And part of how I did that was I decided, you know, I really need to dig down at the local level. Crow is not necessarily representative. There's just such variety, but I need to be able to kind of better understand, first of all, the, the circumstances, right, in which these policies were being kind of imposed. And then what was going on with the ground and, 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 and what families and communities and, and women were doing. And so that's what led me to this idea of having an extended case study of the Crow Reservation. And again, I, I landed on the Crow Reservation for a few different reasons that it had appeared in a lot of my archival research. So that was part of it. But in a moment of, of just real serendipity, I happened to encounter a Crow writer named Valerie Jackson, who was living in Tempe. I mean, just blocks from me as I was kind of working on this project. And she happened to be the granddaughter of Susie Yellowtail, who is a, a key figure in the book. But so she was really my introduction to Crow and to her family and to extended kin, especially female kin. And so what ended up happening then is the structure of the book really follows the Crow story as kind of richly and an on the ground view as I could. And that is then interwoven with this broader story of policy and also just kind of broader federal and national trends. That really came through as I read it. And I so appreciated that you would talk about policy and yes, national trends and what the government was doing, but then it always was grounded in real people's lived experience with names and relationships. And I could very much relate to it as, again, as a mother, as a member of a community, as a human being. And so it, it really told a very compelling human story. So I highly recommend to listeners to get this book. In fact, I didn't mention this to Brianna that I found your book because my oldest daughter goes to Boston University and she's taking a class on the American West and your book was part of their curriculum. And oh. so my daughter recommended it to me. Oh, that's wonderful. So, I so yeah. appreciate hearing that. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about The Crow and maybe what we can do is kind of structure the conversation chronologically so we can talk about pre-European contact and specifically about gender relationships in Crow society before colonizers arrived. So what were some of the features of that kind of gender relationships among the Crow? So I will say the book stretches from about the late 19th century to the 
pretty much the present. I got as, as recent as I could. And so I kind of jump in at what really was a, a moment of significant change in contact, but it was also at, at a moment when there had been various forms of contact between Crow people and various Euro-Americans, traders, certainly soldiers, right? And then increasingly settlers, as well as missionaries, you know, so, so lots of different folks. And so one of the things that I look at is I'm looking at basically this moment in time in the late 19th century. And that's kind of my starting point. And so I can talk a little bit about what I see then. And that's not sure. to suggest that this was unchanging, you know, for millennia before. But of course, culture is always dynamic and changing and evolving. So it's kind of like what I can see at this moment, pre, maybe more so than pre-contact, pre-medicalization, which accompanied colonization, especially going into the 20th century. But so what this looked like in terms of gender relationships, and I should, of course, emphasize also that anytime we're talking about Native America, you know, we're talking about more than 500, more than 570 distinct nations, speaking hundreds of, of languages. So there's tremendous diversity. But at Crow, as is the case in a lot of other indigenous societies, scholars typically talk about gender relationships as being complementary rather than hierarchical, which is to say that when you're looking at kind of social roles and division of labor in daily life, there was a often a kind of sex segregation of labor. Men and women tended to occupy different roles. But what we don't see so much is the kind of hierarchy of roles, of man's role being more important, superior, right? We don't see as much of that. But in some ways, in broad strokes, it can kind of resemble a division of labor that might be familiar to, say, Euro-American colonizers at the time, right? Where men, at, when we're talking about Crow, men tended to be involved more in kind of what we might think of as governance and hunting and warfare, though there was certainly more involvement of Crow women in kind of governance and certainly political deliberation than we would see uh, among their Euro-American counterparts. But and women tended to have more responsibilities for home and childcare, lots pertaining to the domestic realm, also gathering some agriculture. And so, so different responsibilities, both pretty much equally valued, certainly deemed equally necessary. And when I'm talking to my students about this, sometimes I, you know, because those divisions can seem somewhat familiar, but where you start to see the importance of the distinction between, say, their Euro-American contemporaries is when you start to look at, like, control of resources. So actually power in those realms. So the, the kind of classic example with Crow is that the women owned the home and all domestic equipment within it. And that had all sorts of implications, right? For if a couple would decide to separate, right? Or if a woman would decide she wanted to leave a marriage, the home is hers, right? This was also a matrilineal society, which again, common, but not universal among indigenous societies. I said it was, Crow was and is a matrilineal society, which means that a child, for example, inherited the clan identity of his or her mother. 
So that's also really important for the kind of centrality of women in these domestic spaces. Some folks talking about other indigenous societies have used the language of matricentric, right? So it's a very women-centered in ways that I think differ from their Euro-American contemporaries at the time. So, so that's a little bit about gender. And maybe I could transition to also bringing in family, which is, of course, very much related. And I alluded to this earlier. When colonizers came in, the idea was that a nuclear family unit was the pinnacle of civilization. It was super important in terms of forcing people to understand the value of, of private property and all of these things, right? And so missionaries and eventually the government would attempt to really kind of impose this nuclear family structure of, you know, a husband, wife, and biological children. That is not how Crow kind of kinship was experienced and recognized in the late 19th century. It really isn't in many cases to this day. So extended family units, right, one's clan far more important. I think it's really important to realize that it, in Absalaga, uh, the Crow language, there isn't a word for one's aunt or aunt, but a Crow child would use the same word to refer to their mother's sister as to their biological mother. And so if they wanted to say like biological mother, they would have to kind of qualify that, mm-hmm. specify that, that term. And I think that's really key for understanding through language how family was even understood and recognized. And so this had all sorts of implications in terms of who was involved in daily childcare. Again, women, certainly important. Maternal uncles were also very important. Grandmothers often had a a role in daily childcare, but also it was super common for children to spend some time living, say with a, a maternal aunt, right? So uh, with one of their other mothers and to kind of move a lot. There was a woman in my book that I quote, her name was Agnes Yellowtail Deernose. And she talks about like crows liked sharing children. We don't think of it as giving them up, right? Of losing them, we're sharing them, right? So everyone is gaining. And so I think that's a, an important thing to kind of keep in mind too, in terms of family life actually looked like on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that leads me to the next question that I wanted you to talk about, which is specifically reproductive practices, because there's this sense of women teaching and mentoring younger girls from the time of their first period. Can you talk a little bit about the role that older women played in younger women's lives? Yeah. So reproduction is generally quite sex segregated. Um, Generally speaking, it was understood to largely be a women's realm, women's space, what you see is a lot of intergenerational transmission of knowledge in which elders and often a grandmother plays an important role. And then when it comes to childbirth and actually giving birth, it was a somewhat flexible system in which often there was an elderly woman, a mother, a grandmother in woman's family who would help, who had extensive midwifery experience but it was also not uncommon for them to, especially if it was somewhat difficult birth, to, to bring in a community member, an elderly woman who was widely respected as a midwife, like for the extensiveness of their experience and this knowledge that comes again through experience and doing this again and again. And so often what it kind of looks like if you look at 
oral histories is something of an apprentice system. So if a young woman became, was kind of interested in this, or maybe if one of her mothers, right, was uh, a midwife, they would start to kind of just be present at these births. And it was really then after a woman gave birth herself that then those in her family or in her community might then start to look to her as a, a midwife in childbirth. And so if you look at the 19th century, they would kind of construct a makeshift lodge or a kind of tent or a teepee for this particular birthing space. And that was understood to be a, a women's space. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about how unwanted pregnancies were viewed and dealt with among the Crow? Yeah, at Crow, both Crow sources, so a lot of oral histories, and also non-Crow, Euro-American sources, like ethnographers' writings and what physicians at the time were writing, they're pretty consistent in emphasizing the woman's prerogative in, in making decisions and also in recognizing at least some elder women, so especially midwives, skills in terminating pregnancies that were, for various reasons, deemed undesirable. Again, we think of 19th century in Montana and those winters, right? So that could be because of kind of material circumstances. That could be mm -hmm. because of the mother's health, right? That's one of those things that's kind of difficult to to get a real handle on so far after the fact. But those are reasons that come up like in oral histories. And these women had quite a bit of bodily autonomy for making those decisions. And that also, I think, points to something important to understanding when we're talking about midwives is that their knowledge and expertise was not just surrounding childbirth itself, right? They had a whole range of knowledge and some had different areas of kind of knowledge or expertise as well. So many midwives at Crow especially were recognized as being particularly skilled at handling colic when infants had colic. So there, I won't attempt the Crow word, but there's kind of a word for like a colic doctor. And what's interesting is even as aspects of this knowledge were disparaged by colonizers, this knowledge surrounding colic, that was passed down throughout the 20th century. And there are still community members who are recognized for their kind of prowess in dealing with colicky infants. Mm -hmm. The baby whisperers of the community. That's right. That would have come in so handy with a couple of my kids. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, yes. I There were so many beautiful details in the book. One that comes to mind is that it was often a grandmother who would cut the infant's umbilical cord. And that was a really big deal cutting the umbilical cord, right? And they would save the umbilical cord and she would pierce the child's ears. Just those, those were very tender details to imagine and, you know, to think of again about, it's a very human thing to think about your own mother and then her relationship with your baby. It's so beautiful. And then it was really neat to me too, to read that the father's side was involved as well. They would usually give blessings and contribute the cradle board for the baby, mm -hmm. right? That was just such a lovely detail. So reproduction is a really important moment for the, the kind of codifying of and concretizing of mm -hmm. these clan relationships that are going to be so important. Yeah. Um, and also of binding together the mother's clan mm -hmm. and the father's clan, right? Mm -hmm. In the care of this child. Mm, it's just beautiful. 
So let's move on then to some of the changes that started to happen as Euro-Americans started to influence the, again, specifically the Crow Nation that you talk about in the book. And one kind of maybe general and foundational concept that I thought was really heartbreaking was this one, and I'll just read a quote from the book. You write, in settler colonial societies like the United States, Canada, and Australia, among others, the principal objective of governments and settler citizens is the acquisition of land for permanent occupation and dominion. And Native women's bodies had long been on the front lines of white Americans' often brutal quest for Native land. So I wonder if you could talk about, in general, I guess, settler colonial societies and the connection between their view of land and their view of Native women's bodies. Yeah. When you look at this, especially globally, there's all sorts of different ways that settler societies at various times, and often this changes over time, even within a given society, try to bring about the kind of elimination or the disappearance of indigenous peoples. And so that has at times been through, you know, brutal genocidal violence, military conquest. It has been through kind of ethnic cleansing when you think about through the removals in the Midwest, but also most famously in the Southeast. So just moving them out of there. And then later, as we'll talk about, it's also through once they have been kind of militarily subdued, the type of kind of elimination or disappearance is less physical because they're now in believed to be relatively contained numbers and relatively contained spaces of reservations those really emerged, especially in the West in the 19th century then it's, well, let's eliminate indigeneity from a kind of cultural standpoint. So that's where we see kind of these campaigns of, of cultural assimilation. The kind of famous quote that really, I think, gets at the heart of this is from a man who was a military man and then transitioned into being a prominent assimilationist. And what he said was, kill the Indian in him and save the man. So no longer talking about killing Native peoples physically, although he had been, you know, engaged in just that effort, but rather eliminating all that was understood to be like Indian about them. And so that's a, a real theme. And my book kind of picks up right where those assimilationist campaigns, right when the Indian wars were winding down in various ways and these assimilation efforts kind of taking off. They weren't brand new then, but they were really kind of coming to the fore. And so where do women's bodies, right, and women fit in all, into all of this? And I think in, in a few different ways. One is one can understand if you're thinking just almost theoretically, right, about settler colonialism and the kind of impetus toward indigenous disappearance. Women's reproductive capacity, right, is potentially a, a problem and is something that is not necessarily welcome. So you see a lot of violence against Native women, especially in the stages of colonization that were particularly kind of physically violent. Certainly Native women being targets of, of sexual violence, as Indigenous feminists have, have written quite a bit about, and that actually has really kind of dark and unsettling ties up to the present with phenomena like missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. But then the other way that you see this, right, when the assimilation efforts take off 
is more about thinking about Native women as mothers, often as bad mothers, right? Inadequate mothers, certainly inadequate for raising, you know, those who are supposed to be future American citizens. So women and mothers become really central often to discourse, justifying various forms of removal of Indigenous children, and also just a a real effort by proponents of assimilation to really kind of reform families and the kind of gender relations that are implicit within them. So often that meant, you know, a real, a, a notable decline or diminishment in women's roles and maybe especially elderly women's roles. Cause there's a real kind of marginalization of elders because that level of elders centrality to da- daily life, right. Was not, did not have a corollary in contemporary Euro-American society. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk more about that. Let's talk some more about the ways that the reservation system and the assimilation efforts disrupted the family structure and reproductive practices of the Crow. Some of the just kind of bullet points that I remember from the book were one of the things was allotting agents issuing allotments to men as heads of households, which just kind of facilitated this patriarchal shift, right? Away from matrilinearity, away from this the communal egalitarian structure that had existed before, punishing couples who were living together without being married. And one thing too that you talked about before was, you know, with Crow loving to share children, that Europeans just did not understand that. And if one family was seen to have kind of adopted another child, they saw that as like, quote unquote, an evil. And Mm -hmm. they said, this is an evil that we have completely stamped out and prohibiting abortion. There were just so many just disruptions of their way of doing family. Can you tell us about some of those that were standouts for you? And then especially I want to talk about moving childbirth from the home to the hospital. Yeah, absolutely. So with allotment, this is a policy that is best reflected in a piece of legislation passed in 1887, the General Allotment Act. And basically, it was premised on this idea that, yeah, communally held land is a real problem and that for Native peoples to become industrious and assimilate into modernizing American society, right, they really need to embrace private property ownership and a pursuit of individual interests and that private property would help with this. And not all indigenous nations were allotted, but many were. This did happen at Crow. And it's basically the surveyors went out and kind of divvied up reservation land into plots, often of about 160 acres that would then be assigned to individuals. And the idea was that these then individual plots would be farmed within nuclear family units. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to give a, a shout out to Rose Strumlau here, her work on the history of allotment, but also about how Indigenous peoples resisted allotment in all sorts of, of ways and how Indigenous kinship really foils a lot of the grand plans surrounding uh, allotment, at least in, in certain cases. And one of the things, as you mentioned, right, that at first they were like married women will not get a separate allotment because it's mm. male head of household, right? That's 
we are kind of imposing coverture, right? That the woman's property is just kind of through the man by, by proxy. But that actually eventually changed. You see really clo- uh, really quickly at Crow, even the, the folks who are trying to implement this, they're saying this is totally unworkable because their conception of marital unions are quite different, right? So marriages are breaking up too quickly, right? And it's just not working. So that actually did change because it proved so kind of incompatible to what was going on the ground. So there's examples of those types of real disjunctures that can be quite fascinating. Yeah, and in the early 20th century at Crow, this kind of new superintendent, and for folks unfamiliar with Native history, that term might not make any sense, but the a federal agency, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, was charged with kind of managing Native reservations. And there were Bureau of Indian Affairs employees, so government employees on each reservation with particular responsibilities, and at various times called a, an agent or a superintendent that was kind of like the, at Crow, they call him the boss man. <laughs> so in terms of, of, I mean, he really kind of represented the the power of the colonizer. I mean, he had a lot of disciplinary power, as you suggested, with and and into really kind of intimate spheres. If a man and woman were living together, cohabitating without a legal Christian marriage, right, they could be subject to punishment. The sharing of children, as you mentioned, there was a rightful home policy, right, that Mm -hmm. the superintendent's expectation was that children live with their biological nuclear families, biological parents. And there were all sorts of actually mechanisms to kind of coerce this or enforce this. So missionaries who started it after day school, which her parents very much wanted because if the kids went to day school, then they didn't have to go away, you know, mm-hmm. to boarding school. So they wanted this, but the school would only enroll students who were living in their quote, rightful home. Right. So those are the types of of choices that were kind of imposed on them. But you quoted that superintendent from early in the 20th century who said something, you know, this evil that we have stamped out. And why I find that so interesting is, I mean, there's a couple possibilities. One is that he is writing this to his boss. So he is putting forward a, a very authoritative, victorious front, right? Or he thinks this is the case. But if you look at Crow sources, I, I, there seems to be no change whatsoever. No, I mean, funny. there probably was, but there's all sorts of examples that in, in oral histories. There's often the case, right, where there's this real mismatch between what you're reading in the official government record and what seems to be happening on the ground. And again, that's why I think it's so important to have this kind of case study or local view so that we don't just assume that if something's policy, right, then this is how it went for people. But there are all sorts of ways that folks resisted and kind of negotiated and accommodated all sorts of policies. Oh, that's good to know, actually, that it wasn't as completely eradicated as perhaps was indicated. Though it, indica- it certainly indicates their attitude toward it, I guess, right? So can we talk a little bit about the 
reproductive practices of abortion. I think that was prohibited starting in the 1870s, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? In the mid to late 19th century, there was a cohort of folks, especially physicians and medical practitioners who really pushed for the criminalization of abortion. And there were different reasons for this, but one is, I mean, it gets to the point I said earlier about women's kind of authority and prerogative. Previously, in most cases, uh, abortion was not criminalized before quickening, right? So before the mother could feel the infant, which of course puts a lot of prerogative and and just also knowledge, right? And kind of authority in the woman or kind of recognizes that knowledge. And so what part of what this criminalization does is it kind of shifts the authority with regard to pregnancy. So what you see in the 19th century is kind of state by state criminalization of of abortion. And so, yes, in Montana territory, in I believe it was 1879, abortion was criminalized. Now, the impact that had at Crow on the short term I suspect it was quite minimal, though certainly the messaging from missionaries and others surrounding evil of abortion started to encounter that, I think, with greater frequency in the late 19th century. And then by the 1930s, then I, I found in some oral histories references to Crow women having become fearful of abortion for fear of legal repercussions for the settler state pre and postcoital birth control. Yeah. It just strikes me as you're talking. Again, this is how I felt as I read the book. Just putting myself in their shoes, imagining my own life and like the things that I listed at the top of the episode, like a baby shower and the way that I told my family that I was pregnant. If there were a colonizing power that came in and took over my country and my community and then started making laws about what I could do regarding my own body, my relationship with my husband, my relationship with my mother. There's just nothing more personal than your family and like the reproductive parts of your body and the little children that you're raising. It just infuriates me to think about what that would actually feel like to have some foreign power come in and not only make macro level laws about the way that we would operate out in the public realm, but in the most private realm to meddle with that just makes me, it actually makes me furious. And it's just so inappropriate for a group of, and especially a group of men to do that to any group of women, but to come across the ocean and then, yeah, to make laws where they just do not belong. It just, it just hit me anew, actually, as you were describing it. Yeah, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and maybe a lot of folks have with the recent Supreme Court decisions around Dobbs. And one of the things that I think about a lot with regard to Dobbs is that there is this kind of irony or tension, or I guess it's like a paradox. These two things are true. One is that this is something that, that Native women have emphasized for a long time. Roe v. Wade was never really a reality. For many Native women, the constitutional protections, limited though they were, but that existed for many women, were 
sort of circumscribed in, in really important ways for Native women, most directly, I think, through the Hyde Amendment, which was passed a few years after Roe v. Wade, which prohibited the use of federal funds for abortions. And the reason that's particularly important for Native women is they receive their health care through a federal agency. So that's mm. all federal funds. Mm. So basically saying that their providers definitionally, right, cannot do this, that other providers and other. Wow. And so it is simultaneously true that in many ways, Roe was illusory for Native women, which I find that so aggravating and, and painful as kind of a continuation of what you just so eloquently kind of described, right? Like, like we see that evolution mm-hmm. of those dynamics. So that's true. And then at the same time, it's also true that Dobbs presents unique and particular hardships for Native women as well, for, for Native pregnant people more broadly, right? Who, be, because of the pre-existing constraints and now there's this new level of constraint for women, at least in, in certain states. And of course, many reservations, right, are in rural areas. Many are in conservative states. So once you start tracing some of these politics surrounding abortion, for example, there's a real resonance in the present, I think, just for so many of these policies and politics. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the rise in infant mortality after these disruptions started to happen in childbirth practices, moving childbirth to the hospital. And, you know, there's so many disruptions that happened. There was a big rise in infant mortality. Can you tell us about that a little bit? One place to start is that the transition to these early reservation systems, this was public health disaster in mm-hmm. so many different ways. So folks were, you know, combined to and kind of forced to live a more sedentary life. I mean, if they wanted to leave the reservation or even leave a district in the reservation to hunt or whatever, they needed a sign pass by that, you know, the boss man, the agent or superintendent. So a, a more sedentary lifestyle cut off from a lot of forms of economic sustenance. This is also the time when, at least in the plains, the the Buffalo bison are disappearing, and that is not an accident. And so there's real problems with malnutrition. The rations that many groups were promised through treaties proved really inconsistent and unreliable. There was also, in some places, a lot of corruption that that led to that unreliability. So hunger was an issue. This led to diseases of poverty, right? So tuberculosis, trachoma, a really serious eye condition was prevalent. And then what's often the case, you know, as public health folks realize is that infant mortality and part of why infant mortality rates are useful is they're a pretty sensitive indicator of a community's health more broadly. Mm-hmm. And it, it, in a way, it's a little bit hard to talk about a rise in infant mortality, though I think there certainly was. It makes all the sense in the world when you think of the public health context, but because the early 20th century was really when infant mortality rates were becoming a thing, be, becoming kind of a, a way of calculating and measuring child and infant welfare, and thus community health in different communities. So the United States was learning, first of all, that actually they were 
we were lagging behind much of the world when it came to infant, certainly among developed nations and infant mortality and maternal mortality, but also internally that there were all of these different kind of racial and regional differences, disparities in infant mortality. So at Crow, to give you just a sense of the scope, when we're talking about these public health disasters, more than one third of the documented tribal population died in the 1890s alone. So in a single decade. And again, youth, infants, children, right, were disproportionately impacted, which is to say that they were, it had disproportionately high morbidity and mortality rates, which if you broaden the scope a little bit, right, is going to have longer term implications as well for community population and reproduction. So part of what you see at Crow then is a response that is an increase in birth rates, right? So only extraordinarily high birth rates really kept crows alive, like ensured the, the survival of the nation. And if you look at some contemporary sources, like that's how they're talking is the, the kind of survival of the nation and, and the people moving forward. Well, so then you have a, a situation in which Native women, Crow women, are increasingly, you know, malnourished, more likely to have tuberculosis, right? Dealing with these, the health challenges that are just kind of endemic to their reservation at the time. And also, in many cases, bearing more children, which is, of course, physically taxing. So that's sort of the health situation going on at Crow. And increasingly, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and, and government officials are recognizing that comparable things are happening on reservations, certainly throughout the West. And so what that led to is a greater recognition. This is a time when nationally women's organizations and even governments are starting to pay a lot more attention to infant and child welfare. There's kind of these kind of progressive era movements around these kind of pronatal campaigns. And so we start to see some of that playing out on reservations and the need to kind of combat this high Indian infant mortality, this save the babies campaign. So kind of pronatal efforts that were often highly assimilationist. It's in the context of this sustained attention to infant mortality, especially in like the 1910s or so, that part of the solution is this push for hospital births, which is, I, I think, was well-intentioned. I mean, certainly assimilationist, but I think that the folks advocating this did think that this would be better for birth outcomes. And there were certainly some prejudicial perspectives of why they thought that. Of course, we know kind of from a historian of reproduction standpoint that actually the hospitals more generally weren't able to kind of meet this promise of better health outcomes and certainly of less infection, less complications until like the 1940s. So there's actually kind of an increase in like maternal mortality that corresponds. And here I'm talking nationally, not just with on reservations, but that corresponds with the shift into the hospital. But that wasn't fully recognized, I don't think at the time by, by most folks. One thing that was also so frustrating to read is how they blamed mothers for poor health outcomes in their babies. And one thing that I recall was kind of the back and forth on infant formula, how at first they kind of shamed Native mothers for breastfeeding because it was seen as backward, but then they realized that they 
you know, the native mothers couldn't access enough formula. So then their babies weren't thriving. And so then they were shamed for feeding their, them formula. Can you talk a little bit about that specifically and some other ways that that women were, you know, seen as ignorant and shamed for their mothering practices. Yes. So the, I mentioned my dissertation earlier, which is a, was more policy history, but that what I titled that, which was way too long of a title, but was the simplest rules of motherhood. And then there's the colon and a whole bunch after that. But the, the simplest rules of motherhood is a quote from one of the commissioner of Indian affairs in the 1910s. And he was one who, he didn't, he didn't start the so-called Save the Babies campaign, but he's the one that, that really kind of ramped it up and, and put a, a lot of attention and some resources, still quite limited, into this. But, you know, he said something about, in both his speech and in his writing, about, like, the, the simplest rules of motherhood would save, you know, all of these babies from their untimely graves. And so part of the task, then, is to teach these simplest rules of motherhood. And again, this is where we see that these rules being about hygiene and sanitation and and basic nursing and about the arts of homemaking, right? And all of these domestic and kind of assimilationist lessons and kind of all of that blended together. But how that happened or how it was supposed to happen was the federal government starting in the 1890s sent, they hired mostly white women, not exclusively, but mostly white women, and sent them to these reservations. They were called field matrons. And what's interesting about this is, especially from in the 1890s, early 1900s, 1910s, and well into the 1920s, the folks who were hired for this really did not necessarily have any qualifications besides being a white woman who was assumed to have this kind of, you know, more innate maternal knowledge that they they could impart. So, you know, sometimes through missionary networks. I mean, there were all sorts of different ways, but these were not folks who necessarily had any training or credentials to speak of. That starts to change in especially the 1920s when there's a kind of shift from this the field matrons, the, the field matron program that started in the 1890s to trained public health and kind of field nurses. So that transition starts to happen in the 1920s. But there's a long time where it's just that the the idea is that, you know, Indigenous women, Indigenous mothers are kind of deficient. And so they will bring these white women in and they will teach them the the simplest rules of of motherhood. And I also find all these references to teaching them the the importance of of taking an interest in their babies and raising their babies. And it's a really interesting thing because that when you read the record, it reads so much like apathy. Mm -hmm. But... When in fact, often what's fairly clear that's happening, if you, again, have a, a sense of the larger context, is that, yeah, it's often not the mother who is the most involved in daily care because it, it's more collective, because the grandmothers have this role. So part of that, that those constant references that just kind of further these associations with apathy and negligence were also, in fact, evidence of continued efforts to kind of reorganize Mm -hmm. families and systems of care within families. Mm -hmm. They're trying to fix problems that they themselves created. We have time for maybe just one more topic. And you mentioned this before, that there's this back and forth between, you know, real efforts at extermination 
And then you have, wait, no, we want to save the babies. Now we want to, you know, have everyone assimilate and kill the Indian and the person. It's just like this back and forth. It was really frustrating and disorienting and um, awful. But the last thing that I wanted to ask you about was this campaign of forced sterilization. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I started this research, I was just kind of struck by how little scholarship there was about history of reproduction. But what did exist, what I was aware of, is there were a handful of articles about this pronatal campaign that we've been talking about, the Save the Babies campaign. And then there were um, a handful of good articles and especially master's theses about coercive sterilizations in the 1970s. And so those are kind of the two bookends that I just, that piqued my interest, both really in kind of unsettling ways, but that I I felt like we needed to know more about. And so I started looking into course of sterilizations. And I would say, I, I think that there's probably a range of opinions about this in terms of how folks kind of interpret the historical record on this. I actually wouldn't use the language of campaign because I think that implies a level of coordination that often didn't exist. And I don't say that to diminish at all the severity. I actually just think it's important to understand how this actually functioned. And in some ways it was more insidious because it was a lack of policy. It was a lack of protections. It was a lack of safeguards. It was a lack of response to abuses. Mm. And it's a uh, reflection of the often tremendous discretionary authority that individuals had on the ground. So individual physicians, also sometimes social workers, And I think that I came to understand how important that was in part because that's what some of the Native women who actually experienced this, that's how they kind of talked about it, right? He's talking about the power of certain doctors where they're kind of forced to go to the government hospital on their reservation. And then they have kind of limited power as patients. So I was somewhat aware of real concerns about sterilization abuses in the 1970s. And this is a a time period where Latina women, Mexican-American women, Puerto Rican women, African-American women in different regions were voicing similar concerns Mm -hmm. and were in some cases joining together kind of coalitions to end sterilization abuses and to put into place some kind of tangible protections for folks. And that actually did happen. It didn't solve everything, but there were some new federal guidelines put in place in 1979. But one thing that emerged in the course of my research that I was not expecting, that I think most scholars of Native history were not expecting, is that in fact, coercive sterilization was not so new in the 1970s. So I mentioned Susie Yellowtail earlier, who was a really incredible Crow woman, a registered nurse, a mother, grandmother, very active at the tribal level with regard to health and then with regard to Indigenous health more broadly. And I discovered that in the 1930s, she was sterilized without her knowledge by the government physician at the hospital on the reservation. She was really upset about it. She talked to an interviewer later in her life, just before her death, actually. She used the word devastated, outraged. 
And she also reported, which government records um, largely confirmed, that like this was happening to other folks at the time as well. And so you see a whole bunch going on here. You see, if you look at Crow in the 1930s, for example, you see the kind of impact of eugenic language and logic being utilized by folks on the ground, by physicians and other authorities on the ground. So that's a lens through which they're understanding what they deem social and economic problems on the reservation. Also that point about the tremendous discretionary authority for physicians on these somewhat remote, at least remote from power government power structures. So the physician whom I believed sterilized Susie Yellowtail, for example, He's on record when he moved to the, the reservation saying that he was hoping to perform as many surgeries as possible mm. because he was trying to qualify for acceptance into a, a particular medical society, the American College of Surgeons. And so, though, so because of those experiences, Susie Yellowtail was really attuned to those dynamics and was really outspoken about the ways in which Native bodies and Native institutions have often kind of served as like teaching, you know, is teaching institutions, right? And and bodies as kind of the the guinea pigs on which folks learn and experiment and all of that. So she talked a lot about that in in a, in a few different published forms in her life as well. So the reason that I kind of qualified that campaign is language is just because I actually think understanding how these power operations worked is really important. And so one of the things that you see in the 1970s is a really kind of astonishing lack of oversight. The federal government was subsidizing sterilizations starting in 1970 for IHS patients and for Medicaid patients. So footing a lot of the bill and according to the language of the law, right, these were supposed to be voluntary procedures. And in, in some cases they were, though I think it's important to recognize the ways in which limited choices, right? delineate the parameters of choice, but they were paying for them, but, and insane that they should be voluntary, but no real safeguards in place. So again, that's something that at least started to change in fairly tangible ways, though imperfect in 1979. Wow. It's just excruciating to hear about it. To wrap up, I'd actually love to have you talk about the follow-up to that period of time and what happened in reproductive justice after 1979? Is there any good news? Yeah. So I think it's important to recognize that across the entire span that I'm talking about, Native women organized in various ways, whether they considered themselves activists or not, right? And understood their work as such or not, but they organized in various ways around reproduction. And then building on that, kind of building on this more localized work in the 1970s, in the context of what we just talked about, some of the reproductive abuses and injustices that we just talked about, that was a really important moment for Indigenous organizing more broadly, and then Indigenous women's organizing specifically. So my book actually opens with the first meeting of a, a, a grassroots group, Indigenous women's organization called WARN, or the Women of All Red Nations. And they were one of many groups that, first of all, fought against sterilization abuses, but also just advanced a, a real kind of wide-ranging reproductive agenda. And like Black feminists at the, the same time, 
were really important in understanding both in their organizational work and also theoretically reproductive issues as more broadly than just, you know, abortion, birth control, right? It, it includes sterilization politics, right? So the right to be able to have children, a right that's then denied to women of color and for women at various times historically, and also the, the right to parent children, right? And save healthy, sustainable homes. That, that's, those are the kind of three tenets, the right to have children, the right not to have children, and the right to parent children and save healthy homes. Those are the three tenets um, advanced by Sister Song, which is a, a leading women of color-led reproductive justice organization that started in the 1990s. Native women were part of that multiracial effort. They still are. So part of what, I mean, there's a lot that's happened at the policy level, of course, up to the present, some of which is good, much of which is continually frustrating. The kind of levels of, I would say, kind of neglect, federal neglect in terms of funding for health institutions. So at Crow, for example, there no longer is an obstetrics department. It closed because of funding issues back in 2011. And despite Crow women's efforts to be able to once again give birth on the reservation, they're still having to drive a few hours. And that's happening on a lot of reservations, as it is to some extent in rural areas more broadly. So for me, thinking back about the last half century is the the importance of different grassroots organizing surrounding reproduction, reproductive justice, attempts to kind of decolonize childbirth as part of a, a broader initiative of cultural revitalization and language revitalization. And for so many people, these things are so interconnected. So I really appreciate, for example, right now, the work that the, the Changing Woman Initiative is doing in the Southwest. Indigenous Women Rising has been such an important organization, especially in this post-Dobbs. They provide funding for Native people who are wanting to obtain an abortion and now maybe have to travel quite a distance to do so. But they also, importantly, provide funding for Native people who want to secure midwifery services, midwifery care during and after pregnancy. So a multifaceted approach to reproductive health and wellness. So I think that there is a lot of really exciting work going on surrounding Native reproductive justice. And I think it's building in really important ways on certainly earlier generations and maybe especially on that moment in the 1970s. Fantastic. Well, we'll have all of these organizations and initiatives listed on the website for listeners who want to get involved, maybe make a donation. And if you want to learn more, again, I highly recommend the book, Reproduction on the Reservation, Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Colonialism in the Long 20th Century by Dr. Brianna Theobald. And I'm just so grateful for this conversation, Brianna. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others 
posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 